you open it up to the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. I didn't check the page number this morning, so um, it actually is in that Bible. But we are uh, talking about um, why we exist. At the beginning of a new year, last week we started talking about the mission of Revelation Church. What is the mission of God? What does Jesus want us to be about we talked about our mission from Matthew 28, which is Jesus' mission. Today, we're going to continue along those lines for the next five weeks, and we're going to be talking about something called our core values. And if you look up here on this uh, banner, you can see our core values are displayed every week. And what core values are? Our core values are characteristic of a person or an organization that are deeply held and influence the way that person or that organization operates. Everybody has core values. If you look at the way you spend your money or the way you spend your time or the, the lenses through which you look at the news or culture, your core values shape those things. Uh, naming our core values, thinking through our core values and saying this is what we hold dear, they help us provide clarity to our lives. Why? What are the things that we think most deeply about? And you might say, well, if, it's, if something is important to you, you shouldn't have to be reminded of it because it's so important. But I think everybody knows that that's not true. Can you think of things that are important to you that you would say are important to you, but you neglect them because you forget about them? And so we remind ourselves about our core values, and we're going to do this every year uh, because... There's something called the tyranny of the urgent, that thing that, that gets in the way. There, there's, there's things that you want to focus on. I want to I read more this year. I want to spend more time with my kids this year. I want to take up a new hobby this year, but something always comes up. And having focused, clear core values helps us as an organization, as a church, as a family, Figure out, okay, when those things come up, what, what should we be focused on? How should we write our budget? How should we engage with the community? What are the things that we should be involved in? And so the first core value on our list uh, is there, is the first for a reason. It says prayer is primary. So we're going to talk about prayer this morning. Um, I believe, and, and when, when about a year or so ago when we were first starting this church and starting to think about what Revelation Church would look like, I asked God to tell me, what are the things that we should be about? And I felt like prayer was the most important thing. That more than anything else, as a church family, we should be dedicated and committed to being people of prayer. And so before we get into our passage in Hebrews... I want to talk a little bit about the definition of prayer because a lot of times what we do is we, we think about prayer and we think about it as communication. And if you were with us a number of months ago when we were talking about prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about this. We talk to God. If we're extra spiritual, God talks back to us. But it's communication. And that's part of it. But prayer is bigger than that. Prayer is something that can be described as communion relationship with God. Uh, there's this great interview, and I've, I've told you, some of you this before, but this great interview with Mother Teresa that Dan Rather did a number of years ago. And he asked Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say to God? 
And she said, I don't say anything, I listen. And then he said, okay, what does God say to you? And she said, he doesn't say anything, he listens. And then he got kind of a funny look on his face, and she goes, if, if you can't understand that, I can't explain it to you. And this is communion, and we see this all throughout Scripture. Jesus says, abide in me. Be near me. Be with me. Paul says something like, pray without ceasing. And you read that verse, and you go like, how is that even possible? I don't know how to do that. I can't talk to God all day. Well, that's not the point. It's not about talking and listening. It's about being the Lord. And if that sounds confusing or hard to understand, it is. Um, but I thought of some examples from my life with other people that might help uh, to, to help you think through what communion looks like. One of the best parts of my day, without exception, is the very last moment of it. Because after dinner, after we read books or play games, after we put the kids to bed, after we watch something stupid on Netflix, it's bedtime. And I lay in bed with my wife in the dark, and we're going to sleep. And just the very idea that we are together is incredibly sweet to me. We're not talking to each other. I'm not hearing. I've, I've heard about her day. That happens as soon as I get home from work. <laughs> She's heard about mine. We've discussed the things that we need to discuss as a family. We've spent time together, and all of that is past, and we are just spending time together. That is communion. I have a good friend who, I don't see that often, but sometimes we go out for coffee, and, and we'll, we'll get coffee at the coffee shop, and we'll be sitting across from each other, and we'll be talking about how things are going in our lives. I've been doing this. He's been doing that. And inevitably, there will be a lull in the conversation. And we will just be sitting across from one another. And it's not awkward at all. Sometimes, you know, you, you're in relationship with people or you just meet somebody and it's awkward. Like I, I, I was at work last week and um, uh, one of my, I went into one of my coworkers' office and I said, hey, how was your weekend? And he goes, good, how was yours? And I said, it was great. Okay, um, well, have a good day, I guess. And because that was the end of it. It was super weird. But with my friend Josh... That doesn't happen. We can sit in silence, and I know that the conversation will pick back up at some point, but just hanging out together is a good thing. That's communion. Lastly, I'll be sitting at home on my couch reading a book or um, looking at my iPad or something, and my children, they will, they will come up and they will sit on the couch next to me and they will put their arm around my arm and they will lay their head on my shoulder. And we will just sit together. Now, that doesn't happen very often, because usually they want to talk. They're, very, they're good talkers, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they want, they want to show me what they've drawn and what they've made out of Legos and some fact about bats that they read at school or whatever. But sometimes they just, they're quiet, and they sit next to me because they just want to be with me. That's communion. And so as much as prayer is talking to God, as much as prayer is listening to God, be thinking about just being in God's presence as we discuss prayer. So Hebrews chapter four. The book of Hebrews is big and thick and rich and hard to understand. Uh, so we're gonna have to take a little bit of a running start at this passage. 
we talk about the author of the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that we don't know the author of. We don't know who wrote it. Some people think Paul wrote it. Some people think Apollos or uh, Barnabas wrote it, but nobody really knows. Uh, and this was kind of contentious in the early church because one of the criteria for including a book in the New Testament was it was written by an apostle. It was written by somebody who knew Jesus. And nobody was really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but everybody knew it was such a powerful book. It was so rich and it, it taught us so much about Jesus that it had to be included. And the gist of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than everything. Over and over and over again, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is better than this thing that you think is awesome. Jesus is better than this thing that you think is great. Jesus is so much better than everything. And we're going to jump into the middle of a conversation that this uh, author is having about the Old Testament. And he loves the Old Testament. So there's a, um, not to get too ranty, but there's a uh, kind of stream in Christianity right now that is saying, you know, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore. We have Jesus. We have the New Testament. The Old Testament's not really worth it. The author of Hebrews disagrees. He is super excited about the Old Testament, and he wants to teach us about God through it. And so he's going to bring up three ideas, and these ideas are going to revolve around two words. The words are rest and Sabbath. And right now, I want you to think of rest and Sabbath as the same thing. When he says rest, when he says Sabbath, we're talking about the same thing. And he's going to talk about three different ideas. He's going to talk about creation. He's going to talk about the promised land. And if that's unfamiliar, we'll get to it. And then he's going to talk about the life of the Christian. So Sabbath, if, you're, if you've been in church for a long time, if you're familiar with church, Sabbath might seem uh, familiar to you. It's, it's, it's a law. The Jewish people received the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, when they left Egypt. And one of those laws was keep the Sabbath holy. The idea was you are supposed to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, you're supposed to rest. And the law says that because God created the earth, in six days, and then he rested on the seventh, you should do likewise. And so what we tend to think is that like God worked really hard on the earth, the plants and the animals and the people and stuff, and then he was tired and he needed a nap, and so he rested. But that's not what that means. That's not what the original readers of the book of Genesis would have heard. What they would have heard was God did an extraordinary thing in creating the universe. And then he transitioned from doing an extraordinary thing to doing a regular thing, which is ruling over the universe. He rested from his extraordinary work and began his normal work of being king of the universe. Because in the beginning, Genesis says, the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. The, paint, the picture that, the, that Moses paints in Genesis is that it's chaotic, it's dark, it's without order. And all of the creation story is God entering into that darkness and that situation and bringing order and bringing beauty and bringing 
glory into the creation. And it's this amazing thing. And then on day seven, that work is done. He rests from that work, but he doesn't go take a nap. He takes up residence on his throne as king. And so the idea of the Sabbath, when we get to the law of God, is you should work for six days. And then on the seventh day, you should rest. Not because you should take a nap like God did, but because you should recognize that God is still resting. God is still ruling the cosmos from his throne, and you can let go of the wheel for a day because God has got this. God has always got this, and an example to you of this is that you don't have to have it all the time. You don't have to take charge every single day. God is not napping. God is in control. And you can let go of your control and give it to him. This is what the Sabbath is supposed to remind the Jewish people of. And you see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So this is the first thing to hold on to, that God is not napping. He's in control. And then we start reading about the promised land. And this is prior to the verses that Spencer read at the end of chapter three and in the beginning of chapter four. But the author of Hebrews starts talking about the people of Israel entering the promised land. And if you know this story, they've been rescued out of Egypt and they've traveled through to Mount Sinai to get the law. And then they've traveled a little longer and they get to the border of the promised land. Send in 12 spies to look at the land because God said, this is the land that you are going to live in. They send in 12 spies and the 12 spies come back and they say, everybody, there's a giant. There's armies there. It's scary. This is, this is not a good idea. And 10 of them are like, we can't go in there. But two of the spies are like, yeah, those things are true, but we should totally go in there because God told us to and he's got this. They don't believe the two. They believe the 10. They say, we're not going in. We don't believe that you have our backs, God. We don't believe that you're going to take care of us. And so God says, okay, well then I'm going to send you out into the wilderness for 40 years so you all die. And it's, he's not cruel about it. He, he sustains them for 40 years. But as they all die of old age, he says, your children will enter into the promised land because they will believe me. And this is the same idea. God hears the cry of his people in Egypt. And he does an extraordinary thing. He enters into this situation. He does miracles. He causes plagues. He parts the Red Sea and saves his people with this extraordinary work. And then he enters into a regular work of leading his people and over them in the promised land. And the author of Hebrews describes this as God's rest. He says, some of them, they didn't enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. But then Joshua brought their children into God's rest. So in verse eight, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter 
that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So what he's saying is is, is this rest, this idea of Sabbath, didn't end with God's people in Israel. God promised them rest in the promised land, but then he spoke of a future rest. And the author of Hebrews says, we get to experience that rest now. And so we get to things like Jesus saying, come to me, all of you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest in Matthew 11. And so God, again, steps into humanity, does an amazing, extraordinary work of saving his people from sin through Jesus. And then he settles into a regular work of leading his people. And so the author of Hebrews says there's something about this idea of rest that we can have now. He says in verse 11, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. What is the pattern of disobedience that he's talking about? We think back to the people of God at the border of the promised land. They don't believe that God will take care of They don't believe that God has their backs. When we hear the words unbelief, I think it's easy for us to think about like people who say they're atheists. Well, I don't believe in God. That's what unbelief is. And that's certainly true. But to the Israelite people, they they didn't have a kind of unbelief like that. They'd just seen God part the Red Sea. They knew God was real. They knew God existed. They had seen his power in amazing ways. The unbelief that they suffered from was a lack of trust. They didn't trust God. They didn't think that he had their good in mind. So the author of Hebrews says, don't be like those people. Don't fall into that pattern of disobedience. Don't be unbelieving. Because God offers us the opportunity to stop worrying, to stop being anxious, to stop fighting for control, to let go of the things that consume us and give them over to him. Enter his rest. And then the the question for us becomes, do we trust that God has everything under control. Whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that is freaking us out, whatever it is that we're scared of or anxious about or concerned about, do we trust that God takes care of it? And so practical questions for us are like, how well are you sleeping? There's a lot of reasons for not sleeping, but do you not sleep well because you're anxious? Because you're afraid? Because life is piling up and you can't seem to set it down? What happens when you lose control of a situation? When there's nothing you can do about it? Freak out outwardly? Do you just freak out inwardly? Do you ha- can, can you fake enough people out that nobody knows, but inside you're just dying? How do you respond to these kind of things? Because the offer of God and the warning in Hebrews is 
trust me. Don't be unbelieving. Trust me. There's this, this neat little book um, by a guy named Brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence of God. If you haven't read it, it's like 50 pages long or something. It's really short. But Brother Lawrence was a monk in the 1600s. He lived in a monastery with about 100 other guys. And this book is just some letters that he wrote uh, to a friend. And Brother Lawrence, he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a Bible scholar. He started out as the cook in the monastery. And after a number of years, he got promoted to the shoe guy, which seems really weird. But there's like 100 men that live in this monastery, and they all have sandals, and they break. And his job was to fix everybody's sandals. That sounds awful to me. <laughs> but, but this whole book is about how he's learned to just experience God's presence, to just remind himself over and over and over again that whatever he's doing, whether he's doing the dishes or mending sandals or walking to and from the market, God is with him. God has it under control. And so if you're taking notes, I have five recommendations for prayer this morning. And the first one is be trusting in prayer. Trust that God has got things under control. Come to him believing that you can rest because he is in charge of the world. He didn't take a nap. He's the king and he has it under control. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So he brings up the word of God. And, and we, could, we could say this about the word of God as as a whole, the word of God, this book, this Bible that we carry. But specifically, the author of Hebrews is talking about the story he just told. He's just told this story about the Israelites in Exodus and in Joshua and how they failed to enter the promised land and how the next generation did instead. And he's saying, this is like a sword. This story, this, this book that we have is powerful. And it can dig inside of you and discern things about your heart. And why is that? In verse 13, all of a sudden, he, he switches. He's been talking about it, the word of God. And he says, no creature is hidden from him, from God. Why is the word of God powerful? Because God wrote it. It's not a magical book. We don't, we don't worship it. We don't revere it. If it gets tattered and worn, we can go out and buy a new one. But the words of this book are God's words, and they have power. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed in the eyes of him us give an account. Naked and exposed. Aren't you glad we have clothes? 
Like, you know, you know when I am reminded that I need to go to the gym? When I'm not wearing any clothes, honestly. Like, I feel like I'm pretty, I'm, I'm okay when I have clothes on. But there's the, I, I catch myself in the mirror and I don't have any clothes on. I should go to the gym. Because clothes, they hide a lot of stuff. They cover stuff up. They allow us to kind of shape our own reality a little bit. But God, God says, I can see you naked. There's nothing going on in your life that is hidden from God. There's nothing, there's nothing that he doesn't know. Even if you don't tell him. All of, all of the dark things that go through your mind that you don't even want to think about, all of the fears, all of the worries, everything that even you're afraid to admit about your life, God knows. God sees everything clearly. And so my second recommendation is be honest in prayer honest with God in prayer. I catch myself sometimes like saying things to God that are a little, a little more eloquent or a little more sugar-coated than they should be. And I know God just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, when you're ready to be honest with me, you just let me know I'm here. And I have to admit some of my best experiences with the Lord have been getting in the car and driving around and just yelling at the top of my lungs because I don't know what's going on and I'm confused and I'm concerned and I need help and I need wisdom and I don't know what to do. I can't pretend that God doesn't know all of that exists inside me. And so being honest with him builds that relationship. I can't hide it. I think sometimes he lets us hide it. We want to. But he wants us to be honest. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That sounds scary. We have to give an account to God. God, there's going to be a day when our life is going to be held up in front of him and he's going to say, let's talk about that. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. All of the brokenness in your heart has been mended through the blood of Christ. But you're still responsible for the gifts you've been given. You've been given eternal life. You've been given spiritual blessings. You've been given the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You're accountable for those things. At work, um, we, a lot of the work that we do is uh, very time dependent. So the different departments and the different employees keep really um, detailed time logs. So I have a spreadsheet that I open when I go to work and I, it's like email 9am to 9.05 and then I started this project from 9.05 to 10.18 and then and it's very detailed and very specific and then my boss comes back through and they make cost um, calculations based on how long it takes different people to get things done. And I know I am accountable to my boss for my time at work. And so if I write in my time log that, 
you know, I was having technical difficulties with my computer for like three hours. And my boss sees that and goes, so what did you do? Well, I just got my phone out and checked Instagram for a while. And then I watched some stuff on Netflix. I'm going to be held accountable for that. Well, why didn't you come and get me? Why didn't you tell someone about the problems you were having? Because maybe someone could have helped you fix it. And I think it's the same thing with God. If, if we're going about our lives and we're struggling with things or there's problems, why wouldn't we bring those things to God immediately? Why, can you imagine getting before the Lord someday and, and him saying, so tell me about this. Why didn't you, why didn't you come to me? Well, I, I don't know. I just tried to figure it out on my own. I just, I just ignored it. We will be held accountable by God for our lives. And so since that's the case, bring our lives to him. The third thing is be dependent in prayer. When stuff is going on, bring it to the Lord. Don't try to handle it yourself. Whether it's good things or bad things, God, what, what should we do in this situation? Where should we go? How should we handle this? Should I talk to this person? Do I need to stop talking? Should we buy a house? Should we sell a house? Should I get married? Should I buy a car? What about this thing? If all of it is going to be held up in front of God someday and he's going to say, let's, let's go over this, why wouldn't you bring it to him right away and get his advice? Verse 15. No, verse 14. Just kidding. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus, the Son of God, our high priest. And, and we, don't, we don't have high priests in America, but in Israel, there was a high priest. There were a whole group of priests, and the priest's job was to stand between God and the people. The priest was to deliver the people's requests to God and deliver God's blessings to the people. They were a go-between because there's a gap between us and God. He is so much bigger, so much greater than we are. And Jesus is our high priest. Jesus, a human man, this is his name, Jesus, is also the son of God. And he, he has a foot in both of these worlds. And he is our go-between. I was reading Andrew Murray's commentary on Hebrews, and he points out that he is our high priest. We have him. We have a great high priest. He belongs to us. He is ours. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to neglect the things that are ours. We have, um, oh, well, for a long time, I, I worked for a gym. And the business strategy of a gym is to get as many people as possible to sign up for memberships who think they want to exercise with the hopes that none of them ever do. It's true. Like, you know the gyms that are open 24 hours a day? Like, the pitch is like, you can come at 2 a.m. and work out. You know how many people come at 2 a.m. and work out? And this is the hope of the gym that like we get 
thousands of people to sign up and pay every month for this membership and none of them ever come to the gym. Because we neglect the things that we have. It's so easy to just have that automatic deduction out of your checking account and just not engage with it, not do anything about it. And the author of Hebrews says, we have a high priest. We have our own special access to God. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of our opportunity with Jesus. And so recommendation number four is be regular in prayer. Come to God in prayer often. Because we can. Because we don't get charged extra for that. Like that's included in the package of being a child of God. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Most of us know when we're being pandered to. We see our politicians do it all the time. They'll they'll go and they'll do a photo op with like a miner's hat on their head, or they'll go to some diner and have like chicken fried steak, or they'll uh, be at a factory and you'll see them pulling levers or something. And everybody knows they don't have any idea what they're doing. They're rich and out of touch, but they're just doing a photo op because they want everybody to think that they're just like us. And even personally, like like my experiences in life are very different than some of your experiences. And I can't reasonably say I know what it's like to have grown up in a single parent home or faced childhood poverty, or experienced discrimination in the workplace for various reasons, because that hasn't been my story. And so I really have no basis to say, like, yeah, I totally get what that feels like, because I don't. But Jesus does. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets all of it. We have a high priest And he says this crazy double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which says Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because Jesus went through all of it. He had circumstances in his life that that shaped him in a way that he understands what we're going through. And beyond that, Hebrews says, he was tempted just like we are. And we don't think that way. We think, well, Jesus was God and he was perfect and everything was great. That's not true. He was tempted. Do you ever think there was an opportunity where he thought, you know, I really need to tell this Pharisee off because he's really off base and I need to say some really heavy, hard things, but it's going to get me in trouble and it's not going to go well and it'd be really nice if I could just make some friends with some powerful people. I think so, because that's how I would feel. And yet he didn't sin. He did what God wanted to do, and he said hard things to people when it was necessary. Jesus was followed around by rich women who paid for his ministry and sat at his feet, and some of them wiped their feet with, his tear, with their tears and his hair. And if you don't think that's sexual, you're wrong. 
ever think he thought, you know, I could take advantage of this situation? I'm confident those thoughts crossed his mind. But he never sinned. He always put them out of his mind. Do you ever think there was a time when he thought, man, God, I don't know where you are. I don't know, Father, if you care. I know that that's the case because we have it recorded in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cries and he sweats blood and he says, God, I don't want to do this. Not my will, your will. And so over and over and over again, Jesus is tempted just like we are, but he never gives in to those temptations. And it's been said by a lot of people a lot of ways, but the only one who fully understands temptation is the one who resists it to the fullest. The house that collapses in the light rain never experiences the force of a hurricane. And so it's because Jesus continued to fight temptation over and over and over again, he's really the only one that knows the full power of the enemy. So he gets it better than we do. Verse 16 says, therefore. I haven't pointed this out yet. This is a classic pastorism. But when you see therefore, look at what it's, Therefore, it's a word that points upward what's been said before. And if you scan back through the book of Hebrews, you see like every 10 verses he says therefore because he's just, it's like one continual run-on sentence about how awesome Jesus is. But therefore, in verse 16, because God offers rest as we trust him, because we are naked and exposed before him, We can be honest with him because we're going to give an account to God for the way we live our lives. Because Jesus is our high priest, knowing and experienced all the things that we've gone through. Number five is be bold in prayer. Bold in prayer. Now, some some might say boldness is like, God, this is what I want from you. I demand blessing. You may have seen people on TV do those sort of things. That is foolish. Another way to translate bold is with courage. Be courageous in prayer. And if, if you know anything about courage or have read about people who are courageous, people who are courageous are not unafraid. Fear doesn't go away when you're courageous. Courageousness is pushing through fear. You might say, are we supposed to be afraid of God? Well, the fear of the Lord comes up a lot in the Bible. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author is going to say, our God is a consuming fire. There's this great quote that I've, I've shared before, but I love it. Uh, it's from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
who said anything about safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. We can be bold in prayer, not because God is safe, but because God is good. God is powerful and mighty. And we're encouraged to approach the throne of grace with boldness because we've been asked to come into his presence. We've been asked to give ourselves openly and honestly to him so that we may, find, we, may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When is time of need? My life, it's always. There is never a time where I'm not in need. The throne of grace where we receive mercy. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. Our days are filled with chances to turn away from the Lord, to make decisions that are wrong, that don't honor him. And sometimes, oftentimes, we choose those things. We do not deserve mercy. We do not deserve his gifts. We do not deserve the relationship that he offers. And yet he gives it to us anyway. That's mercy. And we may find grace I love how we, we receive mercy, but we find grace. It's almost like it was hidden. Do you ever, you ever find grace? Do you ever go like, wow, God is so good. I had no idea. I wasn't expecting that at all. I can't believe he's done, th- done this for my life. This is what grace is like. Like, I don't ever want to be in a place where I'm like, I'm expecting the grace right now because grace is a gift. Grace is a surprise and it keeps getting lavished on us over and over and over again even though we don't deserve it. So prayer is our first core value and the core value is prayer is primary. I believe that our life in prayer and communion with God, in communication with God is the foundation of everything that we do as Christians. We're going to talk about the Bible next week. We're going to talk about scripture and this is incredibly important. But I would argue that if you had to choose and you don't, But if you had to choose between having an active life of prayer and an active life of Bible reading, pick prayer. Because hundreds of thousands of godly men and women throughout history have not been able to read this book. We are incredibly lucky to have like 80 different English translations of this book at our fingertips, in our phones. But generations of Christians have loved God and been loved by God and developed robust relationships through prayer without it. Now again, that doesn't mean you stop reading your Bible. Read your Bible. (laughs) It's a gift. But if we are not active in prayer, we are missing out. Be trusting in prayer. Believe that God's got it in control. 
honest in prayer. Recognize that you can't hide anything from him, so don't even try. Be dependent in prayer. Believe that you are going to give an account to God for the way you live your life. So just get it out of the way and go to him immediately. God, what do I need to do here? Be regular in prayer. Don't neglect your high priest. Don't neglect the opportunity that you have to be engaged with God. And be bold in prayer. Be aware that God is a consuming fire. That he loves you. And he wants to be near you. And it's easy to say all this stuff, and it's, it's, it's high and glorious and all of those things, but it's really hard to do. If any of you are like, I'm just not good at prayer, like me too. So as we close, here's some practical ways to pray. Categories here, and the first one is alone. Pray by yourself. Schedule some time. Find time in your day to just get alone with God. And you know what alone means. Um, Jesus says, go into your closet. My closet is where I keep my computer. And so it's not a very alone place because Facebook's there and it's just distracting. So alone for me is getting out somewhere else. And it's different for everyone. But find a way to remove yourself from the distractions of your day, take your phone out of your pocket and put it somewhere else. And just spend time quietly in God's presence. You might talk, you might listen, you might do both, but just start developing a habit of spending time alone with the Lord. And it's like a muscle, it's something that grows and gets easier and you get better at as you do it. Begin to just start thinking like Brother Lawrence. Everywhere I go, no matter what I'm doing, God is here. God is in the middle of this. As I drive to work, as I do the dishes, as I have a conversation with a friend, God is right here. Start to develop a habit of reminding yourself of that. As you practice personal prayer, you will get better at it. We will get better at it. And it will become rich and rewarding. Secondly, pray in groups. Pray with other people. Uh, we pray at 9.30 every Sunday morning after we've set up. Come out a little early for church and join us. Be a part of a community. We all pray together in our communities. You know what happens? It's crazy. When you pray with other people, you've got stuff going on in your mind, and somebody prays something, you go like, wow, that is exactly what I needed to hear. And what's even cooler is then somebody comes up to you and goes, you know that thing you prayed? That is exactly what I needed to hear. Because God works and God speaks to his people through prayer. Praying out loud in groups is hard because nobody knows how to do it and it seems like it's, you're going to say something stupid and... You are. <laughs> it's true. I do all the time. Like, I'll be praying in a group, and I go like, I have, I have no idea what comes next. <laughs> like, I don't have any more words left. 
That's like we talked about last week. We're family. It's okay. Pray long prayers. Pray short prayers. I always tell everybody when we pray in groups, like if, you, if, you, if all you have is like, God, you're awesome. I love you. Amen. That's, that's great. That's a better prayer than most. But pray with God's people. Pray in groups. And then thirdly, we pray as a covenant community. I, we talked about last week when we were talking about the mission. We are a covenant community of God's people. We are bound together not because we uh, are all the same, not because we are forced to be, but because of Jesus. Because Jesus has brought us together and we've chosen to enter the community of faith together. And there are two ways that we pray currently as a covenant community. The first one of those ways is something called Everybody Every Day. A lot of you know about this, but this is our... Um, prayer program. We have a small team, a prayer team that gets a binder every quarter, and I ask everybody in the church to submit their prayer requests. And we compile them into this binder, and there's like eight people on the prayer team, and we divide it up into different ways so that everyone in the binder gets prayed for every single day. like I get prayed for every single day. Like without fail, somebody on the prayer team is thinking about me, my family, talking to God about the things that are going on in our life. And if you have been part of our community and you are in our, in our prayer book, the same can be said for you. And the thing is, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. And it's And if you're just hearing of this, this wasn't our idea. This was the idea of a friend of mine's who did this at his church, and uh, it's transformed their church, and I think it's responsible for a lot of the growth of people in our church. And the second way we pray as a covenant community is every Thursday, um, you might see it on the kind of rotating slide that comes up before and after the service. Every Thursday, uh, some of us skip lunch fast, and we pray. And it's not a complicated thing. It's just like I go to work on Thursday, and I don't pack lunch with me. And so when I'm feeling a little hungry at lunchtime, it's just a reminder, I'm going to pray for the church. I'm going to ask God to bless Revelation Church. I'm going to ask God to open doors for the gospel in Coeur d'Alene. I'm going to ask God to remind me of the people that I know in this community and, and, and remind me what their needs are. And it's simple, and it's easy. And I would encourage you to do it. It's not, it's, it's funny, like, skip lunch. That sounds pretty radical. I don't know if I can do that. But it's really not that hard. <laughs> and dinner on Thursday nights is the best. <laughs> we want to be people of prayer. We want to be people that have deep personal relationships with God. And in a lot of ways, that's really weird and really scary, and we don't know anything about it. But in a lot of ways, it's also really simple. Spend time with him. Listen for his voice. Do it regularly, and you will get better at it. Talk to other people about how they pray. Pray with them. Talk to older people. Older Christians have been doing this for a long time, and they're really good at it.
when we talked about the mission last week, said that we are, we are here to know Jesus and make him known. That all starts with our prayers. That all starts with the relationship we've and it's founded on the fact that we have access to God. Boldly come to the throne of grace. And why can we do that? We can do that because of Jesus. Because Jesus gave his life on our behalf to fix the brokenness in the world, to conquer death. And this is why we have the communion meal in front of us. We have an opportunity to share the bread and the cup together as a reminder of what Jesus has done. He has opened the door to God for us. We have access to the throne room of heaven because of the work of Christ. So we're gonna sing a little bit more, remind each other of who God is through song. And I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come participate in the bread and the cup. Remember the work of Jesus on the cross and Remember the access that you have to God through him. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.